The Philosophy of Logical Atomism by Bertrand Russell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Lecture 8 Excursus into Metaphysics What There Is. I come now to the last lecture of this course and I propose briefly to point to a few of the morals that are to be gathered from what has gone before, in the way of suggesting the bearing of the doctrines that I have been advocating upon various problems of metaphysics. I have dealt hitherto upon what one may call philosophical grammar, and I am afraid I have had to take you through a good many very dry and dusty regions in the course of that investigation. But I think the importance of philosophical grammar is very much greater than it is generally thought to be. I think that practically all traditional metaphysics is filled with mistakes due to bad grammar, and that almost all the traditional problems of metaphysics and traditional results, supposed results, of metaphysics are due to a failure to make the kind of distinctions in what we may call philosophical grammar with which we have been concerned in these previous lectures. Take, as a very simple example, the philosophy of arithmetic. If you think that 1, 2, 3, and 4, and the rest of the numbers, are in any sense entities, if you think that there are objects having those names in the realm of being, you have at once a very considerable apparatus for your metaphysics to deal with and you have offered to you a certain kind of analysis in arithmetical propositions. When you say, e.g., that 2 and 2 are 4, you suppose, in that case, that you are making a proposition of which the number 2 and the number 4 are constituents, and that has all sorts of consequences, all sorts of bearings upon your general metaphysical outlook. If there has been any truth in the doctrines that we have been considering, all numbers are what I call logical fictions. Numbers are classes of classes, and classes are logical fictions. So that numbers are, as it were, fictions at two removes, fictions of fictions. Therefore, you do not have, as part of the ultimate constituents of your world, these queer entities that you are inclined to call numbers. The same applies in many other directions. One purpose that has run through all that I have said has been the justification of analysis, i.e., the justification of logical atomism, of the view that you can get down in theory, if not in practice, to ultimate simples, out of which the world is built, and that those simples have a kind of reality not belonging to anything else. Simples, as I tried to explain, are of an infinite number of sorts. There are particulars and qualities and relations of various orders, a whole hierarchy of different sorts of simples. But all of them, if we were right, have in their various ways some kind of reality that does not belong to anything else. The only other sort of object you come across in the world is what we call facts. And facts are the sort of things that are asserted or denied by propositions and are not properly entities at all in the same sense in which their constituents are. That is shown in the fact that you cannot name them. You can only deny, assert, or consider them. 
but you cannot name them because they are not there to be named although in another sense it is true that you cannot know the world unless you know the facts that make up the truths of the world but the knowing of facts is a different sort of thing from the knowing of symbols another purpose which runs through all that i have been saying is the purpose embodied in the maxim called occam's razor that maxim comes in in practice in this way take some science say physics you have there a given body of doctrine a set of propositions expressed in symbols i am including words among symbols and you think that you have reason to believe that on the whole those propositions rightly interpreted are fairly true but you do not know what is the actual meaning of the symbols that you are using the meaning they have in use would have to be explained in some pragmatic way they have a certain kind of practical or emotional significance to you which is a datum but the logical significance is not a datum but a thing to be sought and you go through if you are analyzing a science like physics these propositions with a view to finding out what is the smallest empirical apparatus or the smallest apparatus not necessarily wholly empirical out of which you can build up these propositions what is the smallest number of simple undefined things at the start and the smallest number of undemonstrated premises out of which you can define the things that need to be defined and prove the things that need to be proved that problem in any case that you like to take is by no means a simple one but on the contrary an extremely difficult one it is one which requires a very great amount of logical technique and the sort of thing that i have been talking about in these lectures is the preliminaries and first steps in that logical technique you cannot possibly get at the solution of such a problem as i am talking about if you go at it in a straightforward fashion with just the ordinary acumen that one accumulates in the course of reading or in the study of traditional philosophy you do need this apparatus of symbolical logic that i have been talking about the description of the subject as symbolic logic is an inadequate one i should like to describe it simply as logic on the ground that nothing else really is logic but that would sound so arrogant that i hesitate to do so let us consider further the example of physics for a moment you find if you read the works of physicists that they reduce matter down to certain elements atoms ions corpuscles or what not but in any case the sort of thing that you are aiming at in the physical analysis of matter is to get down to very little bits of matter that still are just like matter in the fact that they persist through time and that they travel about in space they have in fact all the ordinary everyday properties of physical matter not the matter that one has in ordinary life they do not taste or smell or appear to the naked eye but they have the properties that you very soon get to when you travel toward physics from ordinary life things of that sort i say are not the ultimate constituents of matter in any metaphysical sense those things are all of them as i think a little reflection shows logical fictions in the sense that i was speaking of at least when i say they are i speak somewhat too dogmatically it is possible that there may be all these things that the physicist talks about in actual reality 
but it is impossible that we should ever have any reason whatsoever for supposing that there are. That is the situation that you arrive at generally in such analyses. You find that a certain thing, which has been set up as a metaphysical entity, can either be assumed dogmatically to be real, and then you will have no possible argument either for its reality or against its reality, or instead of doing that, you can construct a logical fiction having the same formal properties, or rather having formally analogous formal properties to those of the supposed metaphysical entity and itself composed of empirically given things, and that logical fiction can be substituted for your supposed metaphysical entity and will fulfill all the scientific purposes that anybody can desire. With atoms and the rest it is so, with all the metaphysical entities, whether of science or of metaphysics. By metaphysical entities, I mean those things which are supposed to be part of the ultimate constituents of the world, but not to be the kind of thing that is ever empirically given. I do not say merely not being itself empirically given, but not being the kind of thing that is empirically given. In the case of matter, you can start from what is empirically given, what one sees and hears and smells and so forth, all the ordinary data of sense. Or you can start with some definite ordinary object, say this desk, and you can ask yourselves, what do I mean by saying that this desk that I am looking at now is the same as the one I was looking at a week ago? The first simple, ordinary answer would be that it is the same desk. It is actually identical. There is a perfect identity of substance, or whatever you like to call it. But when that apparently simple answer is suggested, it is important to observe that you cannot have an empirical reason for such a view as that. And if you hold it, you hold it simply because you like it and for no other reason whatever. All that you really know is such facts as that what you see now, when you look at the desk, bears a very close similarity to what you saw a week ago when you looked at it. Rather more than that one fact of similarity I admit you know, or you may know, you might have paid someone to watch the desk continuously throughout the week, and might then have discovered that it was presenting appearances of the same sort all through that period, assuming that the light was kept on all through the night. In that way, you could have established continuity. You have not, in fact, done so. You do not, in fact, know that that desk has gone on looking the same all the time, but we will assume that. Now, the essential point is this. What is the empirical reason that makes you call a number of appearances appearances of the same desk? What makes you say, on successive occasions, I am seeing the same desk? The first thing to notice is this, that it does not matter what is the answer, so long as you have realized that the answer consists in something empirical and not in a recognized metaphysical identity of substance. There is something given in experience which makes you call it the same desk, and having once grasped that fact, you can go on and say, it is that something, whatever it is, that makes you call it the same desk which shall be defined as constituting it the same desk. And there shall be no assumption of a metaphysical substance which is identical throughout. 
it is a little easier to the untrained mind to conceive of an identity than it is to conceive of a system of correlated particulars hung one to another by relations of similarity and continuous change and so on that idea is apparently more complicated but that is what is empirically given in the real world and substance in the sense of something which is continuously identical in the same desk is not given to you therefore in all cases where you seem to have a continuous entity persisting through changes what you have to do is to ask yourself what makes you consider the successive appearances as belonging to one thing when you have found out what makes you take the view that they belong to the same thing you will then see that that which has made you say so is all that is certainly there in the way of a unity anything that there may be over and above that i shall recognize as something i cannot know what i can know is that there are a certain series of appearances linked together and the series of those appearances i shall define as being a desk in that way the desk is reduced to being a logical fiction because a series is a logical fiction in that way all the ordinary objects of daily life are extruded from the world of what there is and in their place as what there is you find a number of passing particulars of the kind that one is immediately conscious of in sense i want to make clear that i am not denying the existence of anything i am only refusing to affirm it i refuse to affirm the existence of anything for which there is no evidence but i equally refuse to deny the existence of anything against which there is no evidence therefore i neither affirm nor deny it but merely say that is not in the realm of the knowable and is certainly not a part of physics and physics if it is to be interpreted must be interpreted in terms of the sort of thing that can be empirical if your atom is going to serve purposes in physics as it undoubtedly does your atom has got to turn out to be a construction and your atom will in fact turn out to be a series of classes of particulars the same process which one applies to physics one will also apply elsewhere the application to physics i explained briefly in my book on the external world chapters three and four i have talked so far about the unreality of things we think real i want to speak with equal emphasis about the reality of things we think unreal such as phantoms and hallucinations phantoms and hallucinations considered in themselves are as i explained in the preceding lectures on exactly the same level as ordinary sense data they differ from ordinary sense data only in the fact that they do not have the usual correlations with other things in themselves they have the same reality as ordinary sense data they have the most complete and absolute and perfect reality that anything can have they are part of the ultimate constituents of the world just as the fleeting sense data are speaking of the fleeting sense data i think it is very important to remove out of one's instincts any disposition to believe that the real is the permanent there has been a metaphysical prejudice always 
that if a thing is really real, it has to last either forever or for a fairly decent length of time. That is, to my mind, an entire mistake. The things that are really real last a very short time. Again, I am not denying that there may be things that last forever or for thousands of years. I only say that those are not within our experience, and that the real things that we know by experience last for a very short time, one-tenth or half a second, or whatever it may be. Phantoms and hallucinations are among those, among the ultimate constituents of the world. The things that we call real, like tables and chairs, are systems, series of classes of particulars, and the particulars are the real things, the particulars being sense data, when they happen to be given to you. A table or chair will be a series of classes of particulars, and therefore a logical fiction. Those particulars will be on the same level of reality as a hallucination or a phantom. I ought to explain in what sense a chair is a series of classes. A chair presents at each moment a number of different appearances. All the appearances that it is presenting at a given moment make up a certain class. All those sets of appearances vary from time to time. If I take a chair and smash it, it will present a whole set of different appearances from what it did before. And without going so far as that, it will always be changing as the light changes, and so on. So you get a series in time of different sets of appearances, and that is what I mean by saying that a chair is a series of classes. That explanation is too crude, but I leave out the niceties, as that is not the actual topic I am dealing with. Now each single particular, which is part of this whole system, is linked up with the others in the system. Supposing, e.g., I take as my particular the appearance which that chair is presenting to me at this moment. That is linked up, first of all, with the appearance which the same chair is presenting to any one of you at the same moment, and with the appearance which it is going to present to me at later moments. There you get at once two journeys that you can take away from that particular, and that particular will be correlated in certain definite ways with the other particulars which also belong to that chair. That is what you mean by saying, or what you ought to mean by saying, that what I see before me is a real thing as opposed to a phantom. It means that it has a whole set of correlations of different kinds. It means that that particular, which is the appearance of the chair to me at this moment, is not isolated, but is connected in a certain well-known familiar fashion with others in the sort of way that makes it answer one's expectations. And so, when you go and buy a chair, you buy not only the appearance which it presents to you at that moment, but also those other appearances that it is going to present when it gets home. If it were a phantom chair, it would not present any appearances when it got home, and would not be the sort of thing you would want to buy. The sort one calls real is one of a whole correlated system whereas the sort you call hallucinations are not. The respectable particulars in the world are all of them linked up with other particulars in respectable conventional ways. Then sometimes you get a wild particular, like a merely visual chair that you cannot sit on, and say it is a phantom, a hallucination, 
you exhaust all the vocabulary of abuse upon it. That is what one means by calling it unreal, because unreal applied in that way is a term of abuse and never would be applied to a thing that was unreal because you would not be so angry with it. I will pass on to some other illustrations. Take a person. What is it that makes you say, when you meet your friend Jones, why this is Jones? It is clearly not the persistence of a metaphysical entity inside Jones somewhere, because even if there be such an entity, it certainly is not what you see when you see Jones coming along the street. It certainly is something that you are not acquainted with, not an empirical datum. Therefore, plainly, there is something in the empirical appearances which he presents to you, something in their relations one to another, which enables you to collect all these together and say, these are what I call the appearances of one person, and that something that makes you collect them together is not the persistence of a metaphysical subject, because that, whether there be such a persistent subject or not, is certainly not a datum, and that which makes you say, why it is Jones, is a datum. Therefore, Jones is not constituted as he is known by a sort of pinpoint ego that is underlying his appearances, and you have got to find some correlations among the appearances which are of the sort to make you put all those appearances together and say, they are the appearances of one person. Those are different when it is other people and when it is yourself. When it is yourself, you have more to go by. You have not only what you look like, you have also your thoughts and memories and all your organic sensations, so that you have a much richer material and are therefore much less likely to be mistaken as to your own identity than as to someone else's. It happens, of course, that there are mistakes even as to one's own identity, in cases of multiple personality and so forth. But as a rule, you will know that it is you, because you have more to go by than other people have. And you would know it is you, not by a consciousness of the ego at all, but by all sorts of things, by memory, by the way you feel, and the way you look, and a host of things. But all those are empirical data, and those enable you to say that the person to whom something happened yesterday was yourself. So you can collect a whole set of experiences into one string as all belonging to you. And similarly, other people's experiences can be collected together as all belonging to them, by relations that actually are observable and without assuming the existence of the persistent ego. It does not matter in the least to what we are concerned with what exactly is the given empirical relation between two experiences that makes us say these are two experiences of the same person. It does not matter precisely what that relation is because the logical formula for the construction of the person is the same whatever the relation may be. And because the mere fact that you can know that two experiences belong to the same person proves that there is such an empirical relation to be ascertained by analysis. Let us call the relation R. We shall say that when two experiences have to each other the relation R, then they are said to be experiences of the same person. That is a definition of what I mean by experiences of the same person. We proceed here just in the same way as when we are defining numbers. 
we first define what is meant by saying that two classes have the same number, and then define what a number is. The person who has a given experience x will be the class of all those experiences which are experiences of the same person, as the one who experiences x. You can say that two events are co-personal when there is between them a certain relation R, namely that relation which makes us say that they are experiences of the same person. You can define the person who has a certain experience as being those experiences that are co-personal with that experience, and it will be better, perhaps, to take them as a series than as a class, because you want to know which is the beginning of a man's life and which is the end. Therefore, we shall say that a person is a certain series of experiences. We shall not deny that there may be a metaphysical ego. We shall merely say that it is a question that does not concern us in any way, because it is a matter about which we know nothing and can know nothing, and therefore it obviously cannot be a thing that comes into science in any way. What we know is this string of experiences that makes up a person and that is put together by means of certain empirically given relations, such e.g. as memory. I will take another illustration, a kind of problem that our method is useful in helping to deal with. You all know the American theory of neutral monism, which derives really from William James and is also suggested in the work of Mach but in a rather less developed form. The theory of neutral monism maintains that the distinction between the mental and the physical is entirely an affair of arrangement, that the actual material arranged is exactly the same in the case of the mental as it is in the case of the physical, but they differ merely in the fact that when you take a thing as belonging in the same context with certain other things, it will belong to psychology, while when you take it in a certain other context with other things, it will belong to physics, and the difference is as to what you consider to be its context, just the same sort of difference as there is between arranging the people in London alphabetically or geographically. So, according to William James, the actual material of the world can be arranged in two different ways, one of which gives you physics and the other psychology. It is just like rows or columns, in an arrangement of rows and columns, you can take an item as either a member of a certain row or a member of a certain column. The item is the same in the two cases, but its context is different. If you will allow me a little undue simplicity, I can go on to say rather more about neutral monism, but you must understand that I'm talking more simply than I ought to do because there is not time to put in all the shadings and qualifications. I was talking a moment ago about the appearances that a chair presents. If we take any one of these chairs, we can all look at it, and it presents a different appearance to each of us. Taken all together, taking all the different appearances that that chair is presenting to all of us at this moment, you get something that belongs to physics. So that, if one takes sense data and arranges together all those sense data that appear to different people at a given moment, and are such as we should ordinarily say are appearances of the same physical object, then that class of sense data will give you something that belongs to physics, namely, the chair at this moment. 
On the other hand, if instead of taking all the appearances that that chair presents to all of us at this moment, I take all the appearances that the different chairs in this room present to me at this moment, I get quite another group of particulars. All the different appearances that different chairs present to me now will give you something belonging to psychology, because that will give you my experiences at the present moment. Broadly speaking, According to what one may take as an expansion of William James, that should be the definition of the difference between physics and psychology. We commonly assume that there is a phenomenon which we call seeing the chair, but what I call my seeing the chair according to neutral monism is merely the existence of a certain particular, namely the particular which is the sense datum of that chair at that moment and I and the chair are both logical fictions, both being in fact a series of classes of particulars, of which one will be that particular which we call my seeing the chair. That actual appearance that the chair is presenting to me now is a member of me and a member of the chair, I and the chair being logical fictions. That will be at any rate a view that you can consider if you are engaged in vindicating neutral monism. There is no simple entity that you can point to and say, this entity is physical and not mental. According to William James and Neutral Monis, that will not be the case with any simple entity that you may take. Any such entity will be a member of physical series and a member of mental series. Now I want to say that if you wish to test such a theory as that of Neutral Monism, if you wish to discover whether it is true or false, you cannot hope to get any distance with your problem unless you have at your finger's ends the theory of logic that I have been talking of. You never can tell otherwise what can be done with a given material, whether you can concoct out of a given material the sort of logical fictions that will have the properties you want in psychology and in physics. That sort of thing is by no means easy to decide. You can only decide it if you really have a very considerable technical facility in these matters. Having said that, I ought to proceed to tell you that I have discovered whether neutral monism is true or not, because otherwise you may not believe that logic is any use in the matter. But I do not profess to know whether it is true or not. I feel more and more inclined to think that it may be true. I feel more and more that the difficulties that occur in regard to it are all of the sort that may be solved by ingenuity. But nevertheless, there are a number of difficulties. There are a number of problems, some of which I have spoken about in the course of these lectures. One is the question of belief, and the other sorts of facts involving two verbs. If there are such facts as this, that, I think, may make neutral monism rather difficult. But as I was pointing out, there is the theory that one calls behaviorism which belongs logically with neutral monism, and that theory would altogether dispense with those facts containing two verbs, and would therefore dispose of that argument against neutral monism. There is, on the other hand, the argument from emphatic particulars, such as this and now and here, and such words as that, which are not very easy to reconcile, to my mind, with the view which does not distinguish between a particular and experiencing that particular. But the argument about emphatic particulars is so delicate and so subtle 
that I cannot feel quite sure whether it is a valid one or not, and I think the longer one pursues philosophy, the more conscious one becomes how extremely often one has been taken in by fallacies, and the less willing one is to be quite sure that an argument is valid if there is anything about it that is at all subtle or elusive, at all difficult to grasp. That makes me a little cautious and doubtful about all these arguments. And therefore, although I am quite sure that the question of the truth or falsehood of neutral monism is not to be solved except by these means, yet I do not profess to know whether neutral monism is true or is not. I am not without hopes of finding out in the course of time, but I do not profess to know yet. As I said earlier in this lecture, one thing that our technique does is to give us a means of constructing a given body of symbolic propositions with the minimum of apparatus, and every diminution in apparatus diminishes the risk of error. Suppose, e.g., that you have constructed your physics with a certain number of entities and a certain number of premises. Suppose you discover that by a little ingenuity you can dispense with half of those entities and half of those premises. You clearly have diminished the risk of error, because if you had before ten entities and ten premises, then the five you have now would be all right, but it is not true conversely that if the five you have now are all right, the ten must have been. Therefore, you diminish the risk of error with every diminution of entities and premises. When I spoke about the desk and said I was not going to assume the existence of a persistent substance underlying its appearances, it is an example of the case in point. You have, anyhow, the successive appearances, and if you can get on without assuming the metaphysical and constant desk, you have a smaller risk of error than you had before. You would not necessarily have a smaller risk of error if you were tied down to denying the metaphysical desk. That is the advantage of Occam's razor, that it diminishes your risk of error. Considered in that way, you may say that the whole of our problem belongs rather to science than to philosophy. I think perhaps that is true, but I believe the only difference between science and philosophy is that science is what you more or less know and philosophy is what you do not know. Philosophy is that part of science which at present people choose to have opinions about, but which they have no knowledge about. Therefore, Every advance in knowledge robs philosophy of some problems which formerly it had, and if there is any truth, if there is any value in the kind of procedure of mathematical logic, it will follow that a number of problems which had belonged to philosophy will have ceased to belong to philosophy and will belong to science. And of course, the moment they become soluble, they become to a large class of philosophical minds uninteresting because to many of the people who like philosophy, the charm of it consists in the speculative freedom, in the fact that you can play with hypotheses. You can think out this or that which may be true, which is a very valuable exercise, until you discover what is true. But when you discover what is true, the whole fruitful play of fancy in that region is curtailed, and you will abandon that region and pass on, 
just as there are families in America who from the time of the Pilgrim Fathers onward had always migrated westward toward the backwoods because they did not like civilized life, so the philosopher has an adventurous disposition and likes to dwell in the region where there are still uncertainties. It is true that the transferring of a region from philosophy into science will make it distasteful to a very important and useful type of mind. I think that is true of a good deal of the applications of mathematical logic in the directions that I have been indicating. It makes it dry, precise, methodical, and in that way robs it of a certain quality that it had when you could play with it more freely. I do not feel that it is my place to apologize for that, because if it is true, it is true. If it is not true, of course, I do owe you an apology. But if it is, it is not my fault, and therefore I do not feel I owe any apology for any sort of dryness or dullness in the world. I would say this, too, that for those who have any taste for mathematics, for those who like symbolic constructions, that sort of world is a very delightful one. And if you do not find it otherwise attractive, all that is necessary to do is to acquire a taste for mathematics, and then you will have a very agreeable world. And with that conclusion, I will bring this course of lectures to an end. End of Lecture 8 End of The Philosophy of Logical Atomism by Bertrand Russell